Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering Chu, number 10, International Flavor, part 5 of 5. Tony Chu finds himself in a third world country called Yamapalo, hoping to put itself on the map with a fruit known as the Gauzaberry, a very strange fruit that resembles the creature Ozymandias created at the end of Watchmen. Plays need players, and here we have one of the few cops you'll ever hear me saying I respect. I'm talking about the sympath with a heart of gold and integrity to match. I'm talking about Anthony Chu. Tony Chu first appeared in Chu Number no. 1 for Image Comics in June of 2009 in one of the most unique premises in comics history. I couldn't find anything on his height, but he always seemed to me to be about average height in a comic, so maybe 5'11 max, 5'8 minimum. He's got brown hair and brown eyes, and I wouldn't put him at more than 160 pounds soaking wet. He's Asian American and comes from a decently sized family, many having prominent roles in the comic, the largest being his older brother Chow, his fraternal twin sister Antonelle, and his daughter Olive. In the world of Chu, all poultry from the bird to the egg is outlawed in America after an avian flu that killed 23 million people in the United States and 116 million people worldwide. Tony Chu is an honest-to-goodness by-the-book police officer in the vice squad of the Philadelphia Police Department with an honest-to-goodness shitty cop partner named John Colby when a cosmic turn of events has Tony eating the face off a man in a sting gone wrong. Tony loses his job, of course. He ate a man's face, but he gets a new job and the FDA wants his unique gifts are out Tony is a sibopath, and sibopaths have a very unique gift. Anything they eat leaves a psychic imprint on their minds filled with all sorts of information. For example, this is the example given in issue one of Tony's sibopathic gift. Tony Chu is sibopathic. That means he can take a bite of an apple and get a feeling in his head about what tree it grew from, what pesticides were used on the crop, and when it was harvested. Or he could eat a hamburger and flash onto something else entirely. Behind that image of him eating a hamburger is a cow getting its brain bashed in by a mallet. For whatever reason, Tony's sebopathy doesn't work on beets, so naturally, Tony doesn't eat out much. And that is a rough food purgatory because I know how to make beets tasty, but at the very least I need like two more ingredients. Tony's gift goes further, however, as Tony is an exceptionally gifted sebopath and can learn skills and abilities he never had through eating. In my favorite volume of the comic book, Major League Chew. Tony learns how to throw a wicked fastball after being forced to eat dead baseball greats by a man trying to write a biography on former baseball greats. Are you in the loop? I promise you, it's amazing. Powers aside, Tony is virtuous, honest to a fault, and a decently skilled hand-to-hand -hand combatant. However, he's always getting his ass whipped because he always winds up outnumbered. I never understand that part. But Tony's hands absolutely work. As the series go on, his hand skills get better and better as he begins to lean into his powers more. On top of that, Tony is a masterful detective. And we've got the player. We need the play. Where are you? So we're on issue 10, but it's a long road to 10, so you know we gotta go from the beginning. Let's get into it. Issue 1 opens to Tony and his partner, crooked cop John Colby, on a stakeout of a chicken speakeasy, waiting for a man named D-Bear. We see Tony's integrity right away as he sees his brother Chow exit the speakeasy, carrying two large shopping bags of chicken, enough to put him away for years. Tony wants to grab him up, blood be damned, but Colby says no. Colby says he's your brother, that's one, and two... D-Bear is here. The two vice cops get ready to storm the building to grab D-Bear, but are interrupted by a large man with an equator for a gut and a monocle named Mason Savoy. Savoy is a FDA agent, and after badging them, pulls rank saying D-Bear is an informant, so he's untouchable. To apologize for wasting their time, he tells Tony and John to go in and have a bite. No stepping on each other's toes, Savoy's got class. Tony says that's illegal. John says fuck that, and they go inside to eat. They sit down, they order. John gets like eight pieces of fried chicken. Tony, forced to get something, gets soup chicken soup. The food arrives, John starts devouring his chicken, 
Tony takes a sip of his soup and is flooded with images of people being butchered. Tony tells John that the sous chef is a serial killer and he and John race to the back to grab him up. They burst through the door screaming police but a butcher's knife is hurled through the air and strikes John full on in the left side of his skull and face. He drops to the floor dying, the butcher's knife lodged in his skull but tells Tony to go get the perp. Tony corners the guy in the alley, tells him he knows what the guy's done, and the sous chef, not willing to be taken alive and telling Tony no one will ever find the bodies, cuts his own throat. Remember when I said Tony lost a job for eating a guy's face? Yeah, he ate the sous chef's face. Told his boss where every single body was, lost his gun, badge, job, and partner, all in one night. With a line of internal affairs agents outside definitely about to make things infinitely worse, Tony is saved by none other than Mason Savoy, who tells him he'd like to offer Tony a job at the FDA, where Tony's talents would be appreciated. And just like that, Tony ate his way up the ladder. Tony's new boss, a man named Appleby, hates him. He makes Tony eat a rotting finger for Tony's first case, and through this interaction, we find out Mason Savoy is a sympath as well. The finger belongs to a man named Evan Pepper, and just like that, Tony's got his first case. Tony wears a wire, but of course his cover's blown, and we see Mason Savoy save his life packing two sides like Raphael with a Kris Kringle belly. It is wild. That action sequence is amazing by itself alone. After busting up the operation, an unknown figure puts $5 million on Tony's head. Next, Tony is tasked by Applebee to go see a woman named Amelia Mintz. She's a food critic, but also a Sabo Scrivener. Anything she writes about makes people experience it as if they're eating it themselves. A beautiful thing. Unless the food's bad. Applebee wants her picked up because she wrote a review about a zero-star restaurant and gave all of Philadelphia who read the article a stomach virus. Before Tony meets her, Savoy gives him a stack of her former columns and Tony reading falls in love instantly. It is the first time he's enjoyed food without all the horrors that come with it in ages. He goes to see her at her newspaper, but the company is held hostage by a group known as Egg, who dress like French mimes and believe there's a government conspiracy behind the avian flu. They have a 75 page manifesto they want printed in the next paper, or they're gonna start blasting. Amelia recites the first draft of her article before she toned it down and saves everyone's life by making everyone vomit. Everyone except Tony who watches smiling, despite a guy projectile vomiting green all over his face. Tony heads back to her office after work, but she's gone and left no notes about when she'd return. But on a bright note, for Tony, John, his partner, is still alive. A senator dies next with half a pound of chicken in his stomach, Eating good. and that makes it an FDA case. An FDA case chewing Savoy handle. They fly out to an observatory in the Arctic Circle. Tony sees why the senator always wanted to fly up here yearly for budget reviews. There they find out the stargazers have been living in a governmentally funded frat house. Just gorgeous women and booze everywhere, bongs everywhere. Animal house under the night sky. I'd watch it. They find out that this observatory has been tasked with watching one planet in a nearby solar system. But when a scientist goes to retrieve his notes, he finds explosives instead. All the records explode before one of the women in a Russian hat pulls an AK and starts spraying. She kills all the scientists before she and Mason have a conversation in Russian. That was Greek to me. Tony says listening, he recognized the Russian word for vampire and Savoy says there's no such thing. As this story closes, we see people on the lone planet the observatory was watching. 24 years ago, strange writing appeared in the sky and fire above this planet that's much like Earth. Humans and everything. The writing sat in the sky without moving for two decades until tonight. As Mason and Tony leave, the planet, the fire riding in the sky, everything vanishes in a flash of light. Back in the States now, Chu Savoy and an FDA team raid a warehouse to save Chow Chu, Tony's older, disgraced chef brother. Tony's ambushed by a guy with a gun, but is rescued by Savoy, who blows the guy's brains out. Tony discovers from the blood spattering on his mouth that this is the guy who cut off Pepper's finger. He tells Savoy and they close the case. But later that night, Tony is sleeping and sits bolt upright. The next morning, he waits for Savoy to arrive at work and tells the man he's under arrest. 
Savoy is confused, but Tony says that guy cut off Pepper's finger, but you killed him. I'm giving you a chance to turn yourself in. Savoy backhands. Tony drops the weapon, and they get it shaken. Tony's hands work, but Savoy's a big boy, and Tony's soon overpowered. Savoy, pressing Tony's face against the asphalt, bites off Tony's ear. Spitting the ear into his own hand, he tells Tony that if he ever comes looking for him, Savoy is going to eat the ear and use everything he finds out to murder Tony's entire family before telling him goodbye forever. Here, we find out the avian flu that killed so many people began three years prior, but Mason Savoy doesn't believe it was a bird flu. He dedicated the rest of his life to finding out the truth, and now he has to do it the hard way without the FDA resources. Tony, now in need of a partner, is repartnered with John Colby, who's been transformed into the Bionic Man. The whole left side of his face covered in metal with a cyborg's eye and the tricks to match. Half his face is now a supercomputer. Their first case as FDA agents together leads them to a pile of human feces in a bank safe. Tony refuses to eat it. But John says, why eat it when we can, you know, be detectives, you gross weirdo. John also seems to be going out of his way to make up for all the lost time he missed off the beat because he's sexist, racist, and homophobic all rolled in one. Oh, and crooked. They visit D-Bear and John throws him out of a window before extorting the snitch for $3,000 a month because the government pays D-Bear $2,800 a month to be a rat. Tony and John go to a bar to celebrate while at the same time using John's new supercomputer to help the case. John's head leads them to the mariner. They find the safe crackers at the marina about to eat some chicken gumbo celebrating their victory. They arrest them all. Tony tastes the soup to see where the chicken in it comes from but is shocked to find out the chicken is actually a fruit. A fruit shaped like a mango with a strange tuft on top and usually growing green large tentacles. Tony he heads to a small island nation known as Yamapalo with his older brother Chow next. Chow's been hired to be a chef for a new restaurant opening in Yamapalo, one of the few places on earth chicken is still legal. Tony's going because the chicken fruit grows exclusively on the island. Despite not being here on FDA business, he's still spotted by a USDA agent who's worried he's horning in on her case and she attacks him in an elevator. After a brief conversation, they agree to team up. Her name is Lindsay Wu, and she's got more black belts than Fancy Dan. She's got four of them things. Don't say for those. She's attacked in her hotel room by an unknown assailant, and despite a valiant effort on her part, is tossed out of her 14-story window. Tony's arrested for her death and placed in a holding cell, where he's immediately given a swirly by the two jumbos locked up in the cell. He's saved by the police chief and tells the chief that the men murdered a guy. Tony bit one of them. That's how he knows. He and the chief go dig up the body and Tony eats enough of that body to learn the killer's address. They storm the hideout together and leave with their lives and a champion rooster named Poyo. While Tony investigates Lin Wu's body, the chief steals Poyo the rooster but leaves a gift for Tony, a gausa berry, the chicken fruit. Tony takes a bite and sees, well, a whole universe in a beautifully drawn purple-hued splash page. Meanwhile, we discover Amelia has come to this island to taste food from Chow's restaurant, specifically the Gausa Berry. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Chow Chu refuses to work in his restaurant after learning Yamapalu has just outlawed chicken like the rest of the world and wants him to use Gausa Berries instead. Remember when I said Chow was disgraced? He went on a rant about the government's lies about chicken on air and lost everything. He refuses to cook if he can't use chicken. I mean, until the guns are pulled. First, meanwhile, Amelia has just tried a meal prepared by a mute chef known as the great Fataneros. Is he great? Well, he's a sibilocutor. His ability allows him to communicate through food, stories, poems, messages, or in Amelia's case, a plea for help as he's being held on Yamapalu against his will. Amelia screams at the governor, the man who requested she come, asking him what's going on here and tries to leave, but she's knocked out and dragged back moments later before being taken to a compound. The same compound Chow is currently locked up in. John calls Tony from the state saying they've got a lot of cases to work. Tony says he'll be back when he can and tells John to stall. John, shitty cop, but great friend and partner that he is, does the only thing he can think of and sleeps with Appleby. Tony, after dining in the morgue for a bit, discovers the compound 
breaks in, and after knocking Chow out, who's had a change of heart about working for the governor, saves Chow and Amelia. All this happening, another intruder breaks into the compound. In the forest, near the compound, Tony tells Amelia he has to capture Lin Sei-woo's killer and plans to go back inside. We see him say this through the crosshairs of a sniper scope. And that's where we are. We've got me, we've got you, we've got no further ado, we've got Chew, number 10, International Flavors, part five. Bring your passport. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. So the credits on this one. This issue was written and edited by John Lehman, drawn and colored by Rob Gilroy. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's G-U-I-L-L-O-R-Y. So I feel like it's Gilroy, but it, it may be Gilroy. So I'm gonna say Gilroy, but I hope it's I'm, I hope I'm saying it right. The flats were done by Steven Struble. Fonts were ComicCraft.com. Logo was ToomGraphics.com. And the book design was all Rob Gilroy. This cover is pretty simple, but there's a lot going on. We see beneath the Chew logo, a shadow in the background on a maroon negative space. We see a large pale hand with gray fingernails holding a silver spoon. Upside down in the reflection of the spoon, we see a gray skinned man with a long face and short white hair. The tip of the spoon is dipping into a large white bowl filled with what looks like a tomato soup, but it's hard to judge because there are chunks of meat in it. And at the very center, a large dilated green human eye. This makes me think the red sauce is blood and a streak of it has spilled over the side of the bowl and is pooling on the counter. There's a napkin to the left of the bowl. This guy doesn't want to seem piggish, of course. It's a simple, creepy, beautiful cover. Let's get inside. Before I even begin, one of the things that I love most about Chew, there were no ads in this comic book. I love that. Not knocking comics with ad. I've read them all. I love them all. But a comic with no ads, it's a beautiful thing. It's like a movie. Page one opens with a caption box. Some months ago. And we see a smiling white man with high cheekbones and a large gray mustache sitting in a high back office chair. He's wearing a tan cowboy hat with a brown band, a matching tan and brown jacket, a white button up and a bolo tie. We find out his name is Ray Jack Monroe and he knows chicken. He holds up a can with a chicken's head on it with X'd out eyes that says Pope Free, artificial chicken. He says Pope Free ain't chicken. He puts the can down and the camera zooms out. We see he's in his office. His hands folded. He says that Montero Industries, they've got no beef with the government and they feel bad about the millions of people who lost their lives, but they understand what's important. When American families sit down to eat, they want chicken. He pivots saying or something close that doesn't come with artificial flavors. He says he's here to tell us that progress is coming thanks to the good folks at Montero Industries and frogs. In a final panel, we see him holding a small frog in the palm of his hand, staring at it lovingly. He stands up from his desk and walks over to a diagram of a double helix next to the image of a smiling frog. Taking a chunk of DNA from the double helix, he says, Now if you ever tasted frog meat, you know it's a close match, but it ain't exact. But we make a few adjustments to Mr. Frog's genetic code, and presto, you got chicken on the dinner table. The next panel, he leans forward and asks, now how's that sound to you? A slender black man in a black slim fitting suit with a Fu Manchu mustache, black shades, and a high messy fade enters the room asking the man who he's talking to. This man has been talking to no one the whole time. Was he talking to us? Madness. Little fourth war deception there going on right from the start. John Lehman is working right now. Where are the good folks over at Amazing Spider-Man when you need him? Because this man has been talking to no one. Somebody's gotta call him a knot. We find out the black man's name is Caesar in the next panel and a boss wants to know why he never knocks. Caesar apologizes but says he has important news. Their company is being poached of more top talent. 
A chemist and a geneticist put in there two weeks. They're leaving with some little guy with a box. Montero peeks through the blinds of his window saying it isn't right and asking Caesar who the man is. In the final panel, we see the little man with the box. He's wearing a red Hawaiian shirt, tan pants, and a tiny, tiny hat. He's walking away from Montero Industries with a box tucked under his arm, flanked on both sides by scientists. One's black, fade haircut, olive shirt, black tie, lab coat. The other is white, redhead, green shirt, and striped tie. They're both staring down at the governor. He can't be more than 5'3", while Caesar, talking from the office, explains who he is. Name's Nomiho Pod, governor of some rinky-dink island in the ass end of the Western Pacific. Been taking a keen interest in everybody with a connection to chicken lately. And not just science folks, neither. Cooks, food writers, what have you. Three opens with Montero retaking his seat at his desk, pointing a finger at Caesar. He tells Caesar the little pipsqueak is going to regret getting in Montero's way. Caesar asks how. Tonight. The next panel we see it's later that evening, and Montero is on the phone with Caesar. That's not odd, but the fact that Montero has filled his office with the frogs from his imagined commercial is, they are all over his office. There's frog poop everywhere. But Montero's nonplussed. There are important matters to deal with. He says, Let me be clear, Caesar. I want every last one of those freaky plants burned to cinders. Nothing left alive. Not a seed, sprout, or a sapling. Got it? The final panel, we see Caesar has traveled to Yamapalo and set the earth on fire. He's standing in the foreground in a Captain Morgan pose, a Bluetooth in his ear, his rifle resting on his right shoulder. He's with three men who, using flamethrowers, are roasting a Gossaberry plot to ashes in the forest around him. Caesar says destroying the fruit won't be a problem. The people of Yamapalo never wanted to go to this artificial chicken. Before it came along, Yamapalo was one of the few places left on earth where people could eat chicken in peace. He says they don't just want to fight. We turn the page and Caesar finishes his thought on four. They want a war. And we see a Mohawk revolutionary with the Hulk Hogan mustache and a flamethrower in his hand screaming for Pollo. But Pollo in Spanish is spelled P-O-L-L-O. He's screaming for Pollo, P-O-Y-O. P-O-Y-O, Pollo? Is that rooster that Chu and the chief of the island stole? These dudes are going to war over this rooster. Next panel, we see another man, burly and in shades with a sleeveless shirt. He's screaming for Pollo as he turns a soldier into Swiss cheese with the AK in his hand. It is a vicious panel. I'd say Gilroy is working, but he's always working, so it would be redundant because in the final panel, I'd have to say it again. We see three revolters, all armed with handguns, screaming for Pollo as well, but their shout is even louder and stylized. As the forest burns behind them, we see them unload their bullets into two soldiers trying to flee into the foreground. One fat, one thin, the bullets tear through the fat soldier as he tries to shield his partner. The three men run off, leaving the soldiers to die in the first panel of page five, not realizing they didn't hit the skinniest soldier. He struggles beneath the weight of his squad mate, trying to free himself, calling out for help. We see a steel-toed boot walk towards him from the direction the three men ran off into. The next panel, we see a gray hand grab the soldier by the collar. The soldier, looking up into the face of the man screams no 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 as the gray-skinned gray-haired man bites into his neck in the final panel with a scorch sound effect that's a solid sound effect i have never seen that sound effect before this comic i think scorch Page six opens to a splash page and I get to practice my Russian. We see this vampire is wearing a black tuxedo with a gray vest, gray overcoat, and a red bow tie. He has a red star in his lapel, Russian star, and the aforementioned steel toe boots on his feet. He's got the Reed Richards working, but it's white on the sides, gray on top with a white patch of hair in the center of his head. Stage right of him, we see the dead soldier shot by the revolters. Stage left, the vampire has his left arm outstretched, releasing the body of the soldier he just drank the blood of. In the background, there is a large mountain and close to the peak, a fire is burning. The vampire says, Translation? Yummy.
Page 7 opens to Caesar on a bluff overlooking the compound Tony rescued Chow and Amelia from. The sniper rifle he was carrying is now in his hands as he aims down its sight on one knee. Montero is in Caesar's ear telling him there's one last piece of business to take care of and Caesar says he's on it. The next panel, we see Tony in the crosshairs of Caesar's rifle. Caesar says he's got Tony in his sights. Montero says take the shot and get the hell out of there. In the final panel, we see Tony in a clearing with Chow and Amelia. Tony is standing with his back to them wearing a black scully, black shirt, and gray pants. He has an AR rifle in his left hand and a pistol in his right. In front of him, on fire, is the compound where bullets and the chant oh, for Pollo the Champion Rooster can still be heard. Behind him, we see Amelia, blonde hair in a ponytail, pink shirt, purple pants. She's on her knees beside a tree holding up Chow, who's unconscious thanks to Tony. Chow didn't want to leave the compound. Tony dragged them out unconscious. Hearing the gunfire, Amelia says Tony got them out just in time. She asks what's going on, and Tony says he thinks he just started a civil war over a rooster. So Caesar thinks all these people were revolting over chicken, but it's really because of Pollo, the fighting rooster. Tony helped the former police chief of Yamapalu steal. That is some rooster. And let me tell you, we don't get into it in this issue, but Pollo is the truth. You really need to learn about Pollo. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity Page. page. Page 8. Just in time for Amelia to realize the man she's trying to help is the famous chef Chow Chu. Tony says, yeah, that's my brother. He's an idiot. Amelia asks how he got a broken jaw. Tony clears his throat but doesn't answer. I wouldn't answer either if I just knocked my brother out, but I guess it was in the strength of being his keeper. So, what are you going to do? Before Tony has to answer, however, three sniper shots ring out, lighting up the tree next to Tony who reacts fast. He grabs Amelia onto the final panel shouting down and we get a gorgeous, gorgeous shot of Amelia frozen as Tony yanks her to the earth. I love this panel because it makes so much sense. She writes about food. She doesn't have any gunshot reaction time at all. There is a look of pure, I don't know what's going on on her face. That is beautiful art from Gilroy. Good thing Tony was here. Gilroy is working, Tony's working, I like to see it. Nine opens to Tony on top of Amelia in the grass behind the tree. Child still slumped and unconscious. Tony stutters, er, guns, shooting, jump to, uh, shield you? In the next panel, still on top of her. She says it's fine, he saved her life maybe, so they're square. Then we get a panel of just silence as Tony stares at her like a creep who can't believe his good fortune. Still on top of her. In the next panel, with Tony still on top of her, Amelia is like, okay, you can get up now, as Tony blushes like a school kid. Get it together, Chew. The next panel, we see Caesar back on the bluff, the rifle in his right hand, tapping the Bluetooth in his ear with his left. Montero asks Caesar what happened, and Caesar says he missed, that Tony Chu was too wily for him. Yes. You already destabilized a small Western Pacific nation state and eradicated an entirely new type of food. Maybe you should just be happy with two out of three. And hangs up the phone. Caesar was working. Walks into the next panel saying, Christ, as he dials another phone number. In the final panel, his back to us, Caesar walks from the bluff with the phone pressed to his ear. As it rings, he says, Pick up, Mason. This is getting out of control. For fuck's sake, pick up. He's working with Tony's ex-partner and ear stealer, Sebopath extraordinaire, Mason Savoy. But the call goes unanswered. The line is no longer in service. Chen opens to Tony getting locked and loaded as Amelia looks on confused. She asks Tony if he's going back into the compound and Tony says yeah, because Amelia told him the great Fontanieros was still inside. And Tony has reason to believe that the person who killed USDA agent Chu is infiltrating the compound, so no time like the present. He turns to leave and Amelia calls out to him. He stops, turns halfway. She says try to come back in one piece in a close. I love the art in this panel. She's smiling, but it's one of those sad, I think this is a bad idea, I'm never gonna see you again smiles. Beautiful art, subtly done. Tony smiles weirdly to himself before racing off in the final panel. We see him sprinting back towards the compound as Chow finally begins to stir. 11, we see the governor of Yamapalo, Nomi Haupai, inside of the gates of the compound, and he is panicked. 
He's gripping the lapel of a giant blonde haired man pulling him towards his face so they're eye to eye. Behind them, a scene of art. We see military personnel hiding behind buildings, firing, bodies laid out on the ground dead, bodies hanging over the sides of guard towers, and fires raging. How Pai tells his guard to call everybody back because they're being overrun. The giant man replies, That's what I'm trying to tell you, governor. There is no everybody. Those pro chicken gorillas hit us hard. All your reinforcements are dead or deserted. How Pai says them they've got to go to the armory. The guard says to a look of horror on the governor's face. There's no we either. End of the day, I like fried chicken a hell of a lot more than I like getting my ass shot. You on your own. Before dashing towards the shadows, leaving the governor to fend for himself. The governor stands a moment with his head down, then breaks into action. He races towards the huts, keys in hand. He gets there in the final panel, but says, oh, fuck. As he unlocks a door and swings it wide, there is a shadow in the door frame. The vampire is already here! Page 12 opens with the vampire standing in the kitchen staring down at Halpai. Behind him, Fataneros, the sibilocutor chef, is standing with his arms folded smuggling. He's wearing a pair of pince-nez glasses, he's balding, he has a full goatee and beard, brown hair, he's wearing a chef's coat, and black pants. The vampire says the chef is coming with him. In the next panel, Halpai, cowering as the vampire bears his fangs, says take him. He was going to let him go anyway, and the vampire says no. You don't have a choice. You weren't letting him go. I'm taking him. I'm taking him, and you shouldn't have ever abducted him. In the final panel, we see Tony Chu burst in, two guns drawn. One, a pistol. The other, a super soaker filled with water. What? He says, sheaves of fangs, motherfucker, with a determined look in his eyes. On the wall behind him is a poster of a military grunt crying, and it says, Join the Yamapalu army. Seriously? Please? And that's one of my favorite things about these comics is the signage that's always plastered around. It's ridiculous, it's hilarious, and it's very unique to this comic. Back to 13 opens with the vampire in the foreground and an image of Mason Savoy and Tony Chu outside of the observatory in winter gear. The vampire says, You, you're the pup that was running around with Mason Savoy. Did he not tell you about me? We see a conversation between Tony and Mason. Tony asking Mason what the Russian woman in the observatory told him in Russian. He says he heard something about vampires, and Mason says don't be ridiculous. Vampires don't exist. Tony repeats this to the vampire in the next panel in an icy word balloon. Vampires don't exist. That's a balloon with icicles dripping from it, letting us know the speaker is cold-blooded. The vampire says if that's true, why'd you bring a child's toy filled with holy water? Tony says I'm hedging my bets. While he's focused on the vampire, we see Hal Pai reaching for a lamp in the foreground. The next panel, Hal Pai grabs the lamp by the pole while Tony continues speaking. But I still got a soft spot for the classics. And I figure a couple grapefruit-sized holes in your chest will slow you down even if you are a... In the final panel, we see Hal Pai swing the lamp at the side of Tony's head, cracking him in the skull, forcing Tony to drop both weapons. The first panel on 14, we see Tony lying on the floor, staring at Hal Pai's hand, lifting Tony's pistol from the floor. He trains the gun on Tony in the next, telling him not to move. Tony tells him, I'm FDA, I'm on your side. But Halpay doesn't trust cops. He knows the world and he doesn't know Tony and especially in their world. There's no trust for the American government, so none of that matters. Halpay tells the vamp to take his man and leave and call off his goons raging across the country. The vampire says, I didn't have anything to do with that. The revolution only provided a distraction. He says the governor's lucky that if the people hadn't revolted, he'd have to make a move himself and the bloodshed would be infinitely worse. In the next panel, Halpai apologizes to Fontaineros, telling him he's sorry he kept him against his will, but he was trying to build something wonderful. The next panel, he tells the vamp to go, who, smiling at Tony, says they'll meet again. In the final panel, we see the tail of his coat in the doorframe as he leaves. Tony's back to us, the governor looking over his shoulder at the door, still holding our favorite Sebapath hostage. Tony screams on Hal Pai to open page 15, asking why he did this. Hal Pai says, it's over. I've lost everything. I don't care if I end up dead. 
In the next panel, he continues, sweat streaming down his right cheek, a tear creeping down his left, the barrel of the gun pressed beneath his chin. But I'm sure as hell not gonna end up undead. We get a close-up of Tony next, his eyes wide with horror as Hal Pye pulls the trigger and slumps to the floor, splattering blood across Tony's face. Some enters Tony's mouth, and in the final panel, we see him frozen in horror as his powers kick in. We see the governor accepting a gossiberry plant from an unknown hand as the person tells him it's a fruit that only grows on Yamapalo. Next, we see the governor lifting the fruit over his head as he stands at a podium telling the people of Yamapalo that he has a plan and the fruit is the future. He says it's going to put the country on the map. And finally, we see him holding his small brown box, staring at the freakish Galsaberry with giant loving eyes. 16 opens to Hal Pai's eyes, staring lifelessly at the ceiling. The next, Tony closes them with two fingers. Tony leaves the compound, bodies all around him, fire still raging, with his pistol in his hand and his head down. He gets back to the clearing and tells Amelia and Chow they're leaving. When Amelia asks where, he says away from here, as Chow, still sitting beside the tree, clutches his jaw, saying, Translation, I think you broke my jaw, asshole. I think he's right. But he's alive. Later, somewhere over the Pacific. Beneath this to open 17, we see a private jet in a starry sky. Someone inside asks, where's Fataneros? Inside the jet, we see the vampire, a glass of red wine in his right hand. He's staring up at a woman with large breasts and a big bum wearing pink brine panties that barely conceals both. On her head, there's a Russian hat. In the background, on a box, it says Russian hat fetish 4. So the vampire's got a scantily clad woman in Russian hats fetish. Only here. The vampire says he's ready to see Fataneros. The woman tells the vampire Fataneros is in the galley cooking. Next panel, we see the vampire enter the galley. A blonde woman in the same no-outfit outfit minus the Russian hat tells the vampire that the man is making him a thank you meal. In the foreground, we see Fontanieros working. There is a white bowl on the counter in front of him near his chef's knife on a cutting board, and he's bent over the bowl, sprinkling, I'm gonna say, turmeric because it's yellow. The woman tells the vampire that she tasted the dish, and it tastes like poetry. The vampire tells her to leave them. The next panel, we see him, his hands behind his back, his head leaned forward as Fataneros presents the dish to him. The vampire's a tall guy, maybe 6'5". I didn't notice in other panels because of the blocking, but he's towering over Fataneros. Fataneros has to hold the dish high to present it. The vampire smiling says, Ah, my dear Fataneros, I believe there has been a miscommunication. You are under the impression I was hired to rescue you. Point of fact, the man originally hired to rescue you met an unfortunate end in the back of a taxi cab in Helsinki. I have no intention of rescuing you. I'm going to absorb you. And in the final panel, we see him pulling a knife from behind his back. Fataneros, now panicked and a look of horror on his face, spills the bowl. 18 opens to the vampire smiling, surrounded by a red silhouette and a black negative space. Stage right, we have exposition. There is no such thing as vampires, but the fear they inspire is real. And the power derived from harnessing that fear is undeniable. He has discovered long ago that he can learn the same lessons from blood as he can from flesh. The next panel, we see a close-up of the not-vampire staring into a mirror. All we can see are his teeth and a metal file in his hand as he shaves his canines into sharp vampire points. This guy's a poser. The exposition continues. And so, he would present himself as a vampire in order to learn more. For the more he learns, the more powerful he becomes. The next panel, we see a maitre d' bowing and holding a door open, ushering the non-vampire inside of a restaurant. The non-vampire is wearing a gray overcoat, red Russian star on a lapel, and has his Russian hat wearing stewardess on his arm. The poster on the wall behind them is a picture of the great Fataneros, so we know that this is in the back, this is a flashback. The exposition continues. Occasionally in his journeys, extraordinary individuals would cross his path. To learn their extraordinary skills, 
more than blood was required. The next panel, we see the non-vamps hand over a bowl of Fatanero's soup. That soup from the cover? Fatanero's made it, and now he's the main ingredient. His pince-nez glasses are sitting beside the bowl of soup near the non-vamps hand. The final caption box on this page reads, In some recipes, absolutely, positively, call for meat. The final panel, you see the non-vamp licking his lips after taking a bite. In the background, we see the memory of Fatanero's. This non-vampire is a sibopath. Using the cover of a vampire and eating the Fatanero soup, he's now gained access to all memories Fatanero's possess. Epilogue, some days later. We see Tony at his desk in his office. On the wall behind him, more great posters. One says Gilroy, the artist, has been admitted into a mental facility. Another says Kid wins spelling bee. The third, Applebee, awesome. I don't think the third is true. So Tony's sitting here for four panels just looking around before picking up the receiver on the phone of his desk and punching some numbers in. The phone rings, but before he can answer, we hear someone call his name from off panel, causing him to jump and drop his phone. In the final panel, Appleby, his boss, steps into the room. Appleby's a white, heavyset guy with a large gut, gray receding hair, and a pencil mustache. He's wearing an olive-colored shirt with pit stains beneath his arms, a gun holster, a black and purple tie, and khakis. He surely will not be invited to any walk-off. Leaning over Tony and his desk, Appleby asks if Tony is making a personal call on company time. And Tony's honest. He says, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. Twenty opens with Appleby standing over Tony's desk as Tony holds the receiver of his phone in his hand. In the background on the wall, we see a fourth poster. This time, the writer John Lehman fights a baby. Why not? I like it. The next panel, the scowl on Appleby's face disappears. He claps Tony on the back and tells him to keep up the good work. He adds that nobody can be working all the time. Walking into the next panel with his hands folded behind his back, he tells Tony to carry on. Meanwhile, the person on the other line picks up, saying, Hello? The next panel, we see Tony was calling Amelia. We get a brutal first phone call of nerves on Tony's part. He's brave, he's honest, he's true, he is not savvy with the ladies at all. He bumbles through about three, I was wondering, would you, er, uh, um, like to, um, if you're not, uh, can we please make, uh, mm, before Amelia takes the reins of the conversation, finishing his sentence. She says, like to go out sometime? Sure. How about you pick me up Friday? Maybe around eight? Tony is shocked. He stares at the receiver with a smile like I can't believe it. 21 opens to Tony sitting at his desk, smitten. He's got a hand on his chin. He's got the receiver hanging in nowhere as he smiles with his eyes closed. Giant hearts dancing around him. The man is in love. The next panel, Amelia says, okay, see you then, and hangs up. And the camera keeps following her. She walks to her apartment, a watering can in hand. She reaches her balcony and begins watering the plants there with a smile on her face. I want to say they're peonies and forget-me-nots. But I gotta tell you, I love flowers, I don't know them. I do know the plant growing in a patch of dirt between her pink and yellow flowers, though. It's a gauzelberry from Yamapalo. Caesar and the gang haven't gotten all the plants! We get a close-up on the gauzelberry in the window garden as drops of water fall on top of it in 22. And that is all we get on 22, the final page, ending the issue. And we're out! So I was a cook and a chef for a long time, for a decade. I remember when I got over the life and I realized that it wasn't the life for me. I really hated being in the kitchen and it made me, after a while, hate food. I knew I had to do it to survive because I had spent so much time in my life doing it, but I didn't love it anymore. I had lost the love a long time ago, especially when the outside world of corporations and things like that started getting involved. When I first read Chew, I had been removed from cooking for, I wanna say four or five years. And in that time, I had stopped cooking, period. With like my disdain for the corporate, I gained a disdain for the cooking. And the craziest thing was, I loved cooking. So I hadn't done it for four or five years when I discovered Chew. And I think I didn't discover Chew by myself. I have a friend named Ahmet, and I think he lent me the first volume, first couple of volumes, actually. And I read them, and I was like, 
Wow. And just all the different things, the more I read Chew and all the different things that I saw about the culinary world in it, it re-sparked my love of cooking. So comic books gave me back my love of cooking and preparing food and things like that. Hopefully I never have to work in a restaurant again, but I absolutely will cook now until my hands can't do it anymore. That's what Chew gave back to me. It's a great comic book. The art is phenomenal. Every person looks like the real world in the sense of it's a cartoon. I would say for me, how I perceive it is a very cartoon style, but at the same time, there's so much humanness in the art. Everyone is unique. There aren't just a bunch of perfect people running around. Chu is a slight guy. Savoy is the exact opposite. He's got a giant gut and tiny legs. He's got big arms. We have people like Appleby who has his own look. The women all have their own looks. It's not just a bunch of the model superhero figures. That's not that's not what this book is. This book is just great art and great storytelling from an original premise. I highly recommend it to everyone. It gave me back my love of cooking and I'm so thankful to it. I love it. Screaming from the mountaintop all day. I don't have that many issues of Chew. I bought it in volumes. I, I loved it. I didn't like waiting month to month because there were just too many cliffhangers. They were pouring them on. So I would wait until they were collected in the volumes and I'd read them that way. We may not hear too many Chew episodes on me and my friend Pete, but Chew has a spinoff called Chew instead of C-H-E-W, C-H-U that I've begun collecting. So we may just see it again, who knows? All that said, I wanna dedicate this episode and this entire season really to a great friend of mine who recently passed, Christopher Campbell. So this season of the podcast and this episode in particular, because of Chew, because it's about food, and that's where I met the guy in a restaurant, two kitchen dicks, doom treading and gloom spreading. Shout out to the doom treaders. This episode's for you, my brother, and sincerely, thank you for the push and thank you for the reminder. Until I see you again on the other side, thank you for being a friend. I think I can't give you any higher praise than that. And to you all I say, please take care. Please think of the world and be true to yourself. And as always, with great power, you already know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.